Oh, my stars, Steve. My stars and stripes. We have some exciting news. Shall we tell them? We should reveal that Chinwag is hitting the road again and going on a West Coast tour. Yes, that's right. If you missed us in your fair city, truly, friends, don't fret, don't fear, don't have a panic attack. (laughs) Do not panic. We will be recording live Chinwags in May in Los Angeles, Portland, and Seattle. Yes, in L.A., we'll be at Dynasty Typewriter on May 14th. You can go to chinwagpod.fm slash Los Angeles for tickets. And on May 16th, we're going to be in Portland at Revolution Hall. For those tickets, go to chinwag.fm slash Portland. And we'll be at Town Hall, the great town hall in Seattle on May 17th. For tickets to that, go to chinwagpod.fm slash Seattle. You do not want to miss this. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be mighty, mighty. So get your tickets at chinwagpod.fm, and we will see you there. Come on out, waggers. Come out, waggers. Come out. (laughs) Come out of hiding. Hey, Jordan. Hey, listen, we have an exciting show today, so we won't uh, kibitz too long. But, uh, you know, I noticed that uh, your friends up in, in Ann Arbor uh, had a very close game against Maryland. They only won by a touchdown, but they they did go up in the polls. So uh, do you have any reaction? Ohio State had they squeaked by by, you know, like 50 points or whatever over the University of Wisconsin, certainly not a cupcake. You have any sense of how the early season's going? Well, it's tough. I mean, you everybody understands why Ohio State gets to score. They get to practice so much more because they don't have to worry about things like education or knowledge. So <laughs> they put all their time into football. So, uh, you know, much respect. Score all the points you guys want. Uh, leave the reading till retirement. Uh, I see Michigan as a win as a win. You know, they're an undefeated team. Uh I think the ball is in Ohio State's courts. Last time I checked, um, Michigan is one, Ohio State is zero on the the football counter of the last 600-so days. So, you know, I'm feeling pretty good at the top of the mountain. Okay, we got our bet on. I forget, is it five bucks? I can't remember what we bet on that. I really was game. hoping it'd be more than five dollars, but I, but I'm. You want to go ten dollars? <laughs> we can go ten. Whoa. Whoa. Let's go 10. Have you Why seen not? these gas prices, Governor? I don't know. Maybe uh, seven. Maybe we make it a nice Okay, we can seven. go seven. And, you know, the thing is, they do have a really interesting coach. The guy sleeps in tree houses and things like that. Anything to get a... Uh, Anything to get a recruit. So, you, know you know you like that. You like Harbaugh. I, did, I did kind of like that he would do that. I, you're right. I did kind of like the fact that it's, he was sleeping there. It's weird. I will admit, it is a very weird thing. But, I mean, you know what? At some level, give give me a weird kooky coach. Uh, as long as it's all above board, I, I, I'll, I'll take a weird treehouse nap every now and then, as long as we get a good QB. All right, I have to ask you one last question before we get to the pollsters. I, you know, Tom Brady and his wife Giselle, uh, not living together now. She didn't go to his last football game. He took the kids. Uh, are they going to get back together again? What do you, What do you think about that, Jordan? Governor, with the gossip. Look at this gossip. And this I know is it's Us magazine. Good, what yes. this is. Our, our audience is we like, have to what, do what's... something to get our ratings up, you know, <laughs> let's try. Let's talk Giselle. You know what? That man, that man has conquered 
75 years of football oh, and always Michigan come out on graduate. top. I almost forgot a Michigan He's graduate, a Michigan, too. Of course, the greatest of all time is going to be a Michigan graduate. You know that. Um, you know, if there's one thing we learned about Tom Brady, it's that when he gets down to the final two minutes, he's the one to bet on. And so I don't know where this marriage is, but let's say we're in the fourth quarter. I, I want the ball in Tom Brady's hands, and I'm I'm really hoping for 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 love to find a way. A reconciliation. <laughs> and I, as we're sitting here, you know, we're on Zoom, but the people can't see this, but you got Celinda, keep giving a thumbs up. I, I guess she must be a, a Michigan graduate, which, you know, I calls. Am. Oh, she oh, is. A, OK, well, let's, start, let's get you introduced. Let's this not have is. you jump in the middle. Go ahead, Jordan. Introduce <laughs> our guest, would you? I love it. Well, <laughs> uh, because we got midterms right around the corner, the tensions and fears feel like they're at a historic high. And with everything on the line, we thought it'd be great to have some insight into what issues matter most to voters going into these elections and what we can expect from these November results. So. Today, we have Celinda Lake, one of the country's top Democratic pollsters, and Ed Goas, a prominent Republican pollster and partner at Terrence Group, a leading conservative polling group. They have a new book, Together, A Question of Respect, Bringing Us Together in a Deeply Divided Nation. It's available for pre-order. Ed and Celinda, we got a lot to discuss. First and foremost, Celinda, how are you feeling about Michigan this year? I'm feeling great about Michigan. We're going to win. Right? Okay. Bet too. <laughs> Governor, you gonna take that bet? You're on, Celinda. You're on. Uh, but I, I, I want it in cold cash. I don't want you giving me some alternative currency. I know the way you progressives are. I know the way you are. You know, it's really interesting because today is the first time we've had two guests on, and this could become a trend for us where we can hear people from both sides. You know, Jordan and I, you know, yell at each other back and forth, but uh, you know, we don't always have the facts and all the things right in front of us, but. You know, if if this works, if we can show that we can get both sides to discuss things, sometimes a little edgy, but mostly trying to find a middle ground, I think uh, it could be a it could be a trendsetter for us. We'll have to see. So it's I mean, exciting to have the two of them. As far fingers as I'm crossed. Concerned, as long as we can find uh, thoughtful conservatives, and right now, Ed, I think you're our first one. Uh, we've we've searched the globe. Uh, so fingers crossed, you don't disappoint. That's not true. Everything I've learned, I learned from the governor. So, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me throw an easy one out here. I'm. We're going to talk about what's happening in November. There's a lot of stuff to talk about. What's functionally going on in the country right now? But just as a way to kind of zoom out and talk about being a pollster, I want to. I want to open up the car, get under the hood a little bit. I'm curious how someone gets into polling? Is it is it the palm reading exams? Are those too difficult? What 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 gets you guys into it? I'm gonna let Salonda answer that one first. Oh well I um I got into it actually meeting a bunch of University of Michigan people. I was gonna be an EEOC lawyer and I was doing my junior year abroad and I met all these expat University of Michigan types who had written the voting behavior books and were applying it to European contests and I was totally hooked. I, I like politics anyway. And I was born and raised a Republican. And that's one of the things we talk about in the book. One of the reasons that uh, Ed and I have always gotten along so well is I was born and raised a uh, Republican. He was born and raised a Democrat, although he changed to the winning side in each case. I changed to the losing side, except for University of Michigan. There you go. <laughs> but, um, and then I just loved... Um, looking for patterns and listening to people and 
I think both of us are really committed to um, polling as representative democracy and bringing uh, the voices of the people to the table and uh, also working for very honorable people like the governor who know what they want to do and just um, don't take their positions from polling data, but do think about how to best communicate things to voters uh, with the help of polling data. And how'd you get into it? How did you find your way into into polling? Because you're a, you know you cover a lot of things. You have a lot of interests. What? How did you stumble into this business? Well, I I started in politics at twelve. Uh, I volunteered in Lyndon Johnson's campaign in '64 because my father was in Vietnam. Um, and as a kid, I kind of learned going through the process that uh, having the numbers, knowing the book, and walking in with the book was so much more important in the discussion because no matter what whatever opinions people had, if you could go to the book and say, this is the opinion of the voters, you really brought more insight into the discussion. And so I just fell in love with this part of it compared to going into media, going into campaign management. Um, and it's something that you're always learning from, quite frankly. You know, a lot of people say, well, I can't trust the poll. Right, we hear this all the time. We can't trust the polls. I don't. I don't trust the polls. You know, blah blah blah. Are polls on their way out? I know they're changing. Uh, we. It's hard to figure out who the reliable voter is or who is expected to vote. Right. I mean, I think that's some talk a little bit about that, Celinda, in terms of when people question polls. Uh, and you guys have to up your game, right? In terms of how to do how to crunch these numbers. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so it's getting more challenging to pull. That's there's no question about that. And um, as you identified, Governor, one of the most challenging aspects is to figure out who's going to turn out to vote. I will say this: that 85% of the polls that I do or Ed does, you never see publicly. So a lot of the bad rap for polling and the polls being so inaccurate actually came from a lot of the media polls and public polls who aren't as careful about methodology, don't spend as much money because it's expensive. Uh, to do quality polling. But our biggest challenge is getting people on the phone. There were times when we started out in this business that 70% of the people were answering their phones and liking to poll. Now you're really lucky if you get uh, 17%. Um, so uh, adjusting our methodology. And then in, in 2016 and 2020, we had the extra challenge of having a very um, persuasive figure, Donald Trump, telling people not to take the polls. So we're very careful about using all methodologies, cell phones and landlines. We're very careful about giving people multiple opportunities to answer the call. We're very careful about if we don't get a Trump voter, replacing them with another Trump voter, not a Biden voter. And we're very careful about trying to get enough blue collar people in our polls. Well, Celinda, what about, though, if people and maybe, Ed, you can you can ask this, too. People can lie. Right. They can say I'm for X, but I'm really not for X. How do you is that? Been, that's new, isn't it? Isn't that a new phenomenon? Lying? Yeah. Lying. <laughs> <laughs> Lying <is old. laughs> it's the second oldest profession. And um, but uh, lying to pollsters is new. It depends. Sometimes people have um, lied before, though. I mean, um or adjusted their answers to what they think the interviewer is going to want to hear. So ironically, um, you know, during the Trump years, online polling was a very accurate way to get because there was no 
interviewer. You could say you were a Trump supporter and you weren't worried about alienating an interviewer. Um, we always, we never rely on one question. We look at the pattern across questions and we look for consistency. And if you have a bunch of strong Republicans who say they're strong supporters of Biden, you know something's wrong. Uh, either the sample's wrong or the question's wrong or people are lying to you. So we have checks like that. But yeah. I think the lying piece is overstated. I think mm-hmm. that- uh, I would agree with that. Ways. And and I would go back to a couple of things. 2012, the Obama campaign came out of that campaign saying, we understood what the electorate was and we did a better job turning out the voters. Well, both can't be true. Either you did a better job turning out the voters to win or you had a better understanding of who the electorate was going to be on election day. And that started with public polls starting to pull the sample based on what they thought the sample would be rather than going through the normal procedures of getting a good sample. And 2016 became the second wave of bad polling. And um, when the when the election first ended, uh, the news media was basically going out there and saying, well, all the national polls were wrong. Well, all the national polls showed that that Hillary was going to win by 3%. She won by 2%. So they weren't wrong. So then they start looking at the state polls. And the state polls were wrong. However, the last day they polled was on the Tuesday before the Tuesday election. And I was in five states, key states, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Nevada, North Carolina, Florida. And in every one of those states, Donald Trump on Tuesday, the Tuesday before the election, was slightly behind. And by the end of the week, he was ahead. And so the part of the problem is, is the public polls are taking polls for the news stories. So they stop polling a week out. So, of course, they're going to be wrong if there's movement in the last week. So one of the frustrating things we have is keeping our credibility with the private polls because we're all about our campaigns and not about the story. I, you know, I'm curious to dig a little bit in on, if not lying, I, I will say what is interesting, I go out into the world and I talk to a lot of people at rallies, often Trump rallies. And I what I see right. is if you ask somebody about how they felt about, say, civility, or do they think there should be more civility? I've asked a man who told me he thinks there should be civility, while he waves a pitchfork. I've asked uh, another man about women's rights and how we need to uh, elevate women in our society as he literally wears a shirt that says, Kamala is a epithet. Like, they're telling me something that I think they believe, but I also think self-deception is is large and rampant in America right now. And so what I see some polling that perhaps is more about which candidate will you decide on, I think that's pretty straightforward and it's an actionable thing. Polls that then step back and look at what people want ideologically, I often, in my inarticulate polling out talking to people, I often hear people say the things they think they're supposed to say, but I can immediately see the contradiction in their actions. And I wonder if that is something that is even possible to take into account in the polling universe. More, it's it's a matter of what's happening uh, uh, with these different campaigns. For example, one of the most interesting questions we've been asking on our civility polls is do you want a member who who stands up to your principles and fights even if he doesn't accomplish anything? Or do you want someone that will go in and compromise their principles in order to find solutions that work? 
And when we get a response on that, we get 68% saying, yes, I want them to compromise and solutions are more important than fighting. And you have 28% that say fighting is more important. But think about what's happening in the electorate today is that part of the problem, we keep focusing on the general election, part of the problem is the primaries, and it's a primary problem for both parties. In 1990, we used to get around 30% of Republicans voting in Republican primaries, and 30% of Democrats voting in Democrat primaries. Today, we get less than 20% in both. And so the only people voting in the primaries are the ultra-conservatives and ultra-liberals, and that's who they're electing is ultra-conservatives and ultra-liberals. And we, the general public, the 68% that want compromise and solutions, are not participating in that process and not getting a chance to vote for candidates that represent our beliefs. So it, it sounds like a contradiction, but in reality, part of the problem we have out there is our system is skewing. If you look at an ideological scatter map of Congress, in 1990, when John was there, in 1990, the, the scatter map of ideology was even from right to left, left to right. Today, it's at the two extremes. And that's the results of the primaries. And if anyone's responsible for it, quite frankly, both parties are not offering us good choices that represent our two values, which is more centrist. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. Uh I have a two-part question I want to throw out there. One, I would something we said, Celinda, you mentioned earlier was how you guys have had to kind of shift some of your tactics in gathering information. And you talked about uh, opening up from landlines to cell phones and what have you. And I wonder how much of polling is based on getting that person to answer the phone. I, I look at myself. I have not answered a phone number from somebody I didn't know in 10 years. And I would say that's almost everybody I know. Even, you I, never even answer my phone I don't, I don't answer phone I know why from, you don't do that. Yeah, no, it's, I don't know what it is. I told you it's, I have bad connection. I don't get signals from the Midwest. Um, but I don't I don't think that's an aberration. And I'm also, I'm not exaggerating that either. I, I simply don't. My, my phones right now tell me when they think it's a spam call or somebody I don't know. And so I just don't pick it up. They'll leave me a message. Is is truly the only way most pollsters getting information, especially from a younger generation, uh, just through whether or not they answer the phone? Uh, and second, second part to that question, as pollsters, who do you see your information for? In some ways, I see polls being used just to be the horse race on cable news and who's winning, who's losing, and what have you. And how much do you see your information being for the informing of the public about uh, general topics or or is it basically who you're working for at that moment so on the first one i would say particularly with younger people um it's very important to include online and i think we at least are trying very very hard to move to more mix, what we call mixed mode which is combining landline cell phone text to online and uh, we would get you jordan because we would text you not just call you but you, you would text me and what, what would it say? Forgive me for being so, because I, I feel like I, I don't respond to anybody anymore. And perhaps I'm an aberration, but I, I the idea of somebody reaching out because of the glut of other text messages I'm getting, I'm getting spam everywhere else. I don't trust outward information very well. Yeah, so most people really like the idea of being polled because they always say, I read all these polls, no one ever asked me my opinion. Yeah, that's a, that's a good uh, point. But they don't, but polls are so abused and misused and 
actually Ed and my firm were two of the very first firms that came out against push polling. We condemned it. Uh, we worked to get the, our trade association, if you will, to do a joint letter condemning it because it's not polling. And, and it's very abusive of people in our opinion. So most people would like to do polls. They're just not convinced it is a poll. And so we tried different beginnings, but, you know, we, we've tried all kinds of things, just saying, you know, we're texting you, we're Montana survey research, and we want to get your, we're Michigan survey research, and we want to get your opinion. Um, and we won't be selling anything. We won't be uh, asking you for any money. Everything you say is totally confidential. And a lot of people do come in through the texting. We also do online um, methodology. So uh, it, increasingly, it's important to have as many different methodologies as possible. So I, our, oh, go ahead. I was just going to add in, seniors are one of the most important groups or interesting groups here. Where seniors, if you do an automated phone call, seniors have kind of discovered it is not rude to hang up on a robot. And so they have a hard time getting seniors to answer. When we get seniors on the phone, we have trouble getting them off the phone because they finally have someone to talk to about what they think. And they're on there forever. We have, we have to be very careful of open-ended questions because an open-ended question to them means they give a 15-minute answer. Mm-hmm. Really true. We also saw our response rates really go up under COVID. It was ironic. Now they're back to normal, but... People were so eager to talk to people. Talk to somebody. We had people saying, I haven't answered this phone in 10 years. (laughs) But um, in terms of who we do the polling for, um, in our firm, we work for, um, a third of our work is for candidates. A third of our work is for organizations, labor unions, um, Emily's List, Planned Parenthood, all of the organizations on on our side. And then a third of our work is for foundations looking at long-term strategies. How do we have Latino families sign their kids up for vaccinations? How do we um, deal with uh, African-American women, maternal and child health care? How do we uh, break down structural racism in our society? And we've done, believe it or not, a lot of that work together with that. Uh, ironically, uh, our firm, we're, we're on the progressive side, but we've probably done more bipartisan polling than any firm, a lot of it with Ed's firm. And people always go to me, oh, why are you working with Republicans? And it's because we want to really understand the issue. We want to understand how everybody's thinking about it. And that polling is richer because people are bringing lots of different experiences to it. So, Linda, you've both you've excited me, but you've also scared the crap out of me that I could pick up my phone just out of whim to be like, I'm going to give it a shot. And you're going to be like, hi, could you tell us how to break down structural racism? Go. (laughs) (laughs) That's heavy. That's heavy. Now, I do tease Celinda that progressives are like the Tea Party of the left. So I do tease her sometimes in some of the projects we get involved in. Let me uh, let me go to some the, the, the issues that are coming this fall. So, Celinda, uh, you think the Republicans have got inflation. People are thinking about that all the time, right? All the time. Um, they're thinking about crime. Uh, they're worried. Are they are they safe? Or if they go to a, a big city, are they going to be safe? And they think about immigration. And I think it's it's more like, can we have some control of the border? Although it may be more nativist than that. And if you see this, Ken Burns documentary on the Holocaust, you know, it has there's a lot <laughs> in there about what the changing ideas of immigration uh, throughout mm-hmm. the history of our country, which is very concerning. So you have inflation, top 
crime, you know, scary immigration or border. I want as a kind of connected to, to safe or my job. Democrats have the environment, which, you know, people are worried about the environment, but I don't know if it's if it if it matches up to inflation. Abortion, which is definitely an issue that has got high high octane impact. And I told my friends in the beginning when the decision came out that this was going to be a big deal. And guns, which is an interesting one for me as to whether that and I believe that guns we're going to see a lot of changes in guns because the population's had enough of it. But at this point in time, just looking today, inflation versus the environment, crime versus abortion, immigration versus guns, it just seems to me as though the motivating factors are more on the Republican side or the Democrat uh, than the Democratic side. But you, you tell me. Well, I would say um, there is that structural issue, but I would say Democrats are very aggressive about the economy as well. And we see rising health care costs and mm-hmm. getting those prescription drug prices down, something you let on, Governor, as right. a very important inflation issue. And um, I think, uh, so there are three factors out there. One factor is, how do we get the Democrats as energized as the Republicans were? They started out energized. The out parties always energized. And uh, frankly, Governor, Republicans did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And this Supreme Court decision really did go too far. And I was talking to some other pollster friends of mine on the Republican side, and I said, I'm praying for um, Donald Trump to announce his candidacy before the election. Um, that will energize our people big time. And they're saying, yeah, we're praying on that too, but in the opposite direction. Um, So I think one of the things is what was going to energize the basis. We have to compete on the economy for sure. And um, I think uh, we were slow to get our message. I think the administration has really caught its stride now with the Inflation Reduction Act, but we've got to get out what's in it. Uh, we created more manufacturing jobs now than we're lost. The S-chips is very popular. So lots of things that are popular. But in at the end of the day, I don't think people expect their individual member of Congress to, to solve inflation. They expect a president to. And as you know, they expect a governor to do everything, including find the cure for cancer. It is very black and white. Uh, in terms of the abortion issue. It is very yes or no in terms of the guns issue. And I'm from Montana, so I respect guns. I was a competitive marksman. I grew up on a ranch, but this is going too far. We have to do something after Uvalde and Sandy Hook. And if you know anything about guns, uh, which I know you do, Governor, um, these uh, semi-automatic weapons, this ammunition is out of control. You do not need this. If you're shooting a deer in Ohio with an AR-15, you have to go to Michigan to pick it up. Uh, So uh, this is out of control. Maybe that's been my problem, Celinda. I understand all these issues. And I don't, it's like I'm not in, I got no friends, right? It's maybe Jordan and he's questionable. Ed, what do you think in terms of when you, yeah. yeah. And and there's a lot that Celinda and I agree on. Uh, What she just talked through, we disagree on very strongly. (laughs) <laughs> um, first of all, the, the key thing I would say on the economy is it's the economy stupid. Um, that uh, what the Democrats are betting on here is that they can take a couple of pieces of bright lights on the economy and publicize it and make people feel better about the economy. Right direction, wrong track in terms of wrong track in this country, just hit 75%. It's the highest I've ever seen in 30 years of doing polling. 
and it's driven by the economy. And I've been surprised at the Democrats that, that first of all, on inflation, they keep talking about inflation. Um, uh, one of the things we've always seen is inflation has a gender difference. Men say inflation, women say cost of living. And I don't see any Democrats out there talking about cost of living. And a good example is the other day when the president was giving a major, uh, a major speech on abortion. The economic inflation numbers came out. And guess what was dri driving the higher inflation? Every single issue was food. That affects people that are concerned about cost of living. And what I'm hearing from voters is that their, their disposable income has all but disappeared over the last year. That is what they're concerned about. And we've been through a campaign before where we had good economic news and we tried to play the game of, well, this economic news is good, it's not as bad as you think, and we're gonna come out of this. And that was under Bush Sr. And he had good economic numbers. He talked about it all the way through August and September and October. And guess what? The economy brought him down. Um, uh, what our example- The numbers our were baked in. Right. The Pardon numbers me? were baked in. People just weren't going to change their minds at this point. What we have seen historically is that you have to have six solid months of consistent, only positive economic news in order for the voters to come to a conclusion the economy is doing better. The Democrats are voting betting against that, but I think they're making a huge mistake on doing that. I also want to talk a little bit about abortion. Um, I think at the end of the day, and it may not happen in this campaign, but at the end of the day, I think a conclusion will come ultimately that the Supreme Court decision was a good decision for a majority of Americans on where they stand on abortion. It was not taking away the rights of women. It was saying, let the states make that decision. I want to get your your take on the Trump factor in the midterms here. I uh this the past weekend, I went to a Doug Mastriano rally, mm -hmm. and uh, I was one Jordan, of me. About how you're spending your time, man. More is... <laughs> less rallies. Yeah, there's so much fun things happening right around it. Come to the East Coast. So many cool free events for people to attend. <laughs> Go to a Mastriano rally. Um, what's, what's fascinating about this rally, though, is there were less than 100 people there. It was on the Capitol steps, and it was Embarrassing, And I think you've seen images of him and, you know, he's flanked far right. He's an election denier. He got the Trump support um, and he's he's had certain rallies that have been with Trump. He had a rally a week or so ago that was connected to uh, the pro-life uh, decision. And there are a lot of people there for that issue. But him alone preaching his own gospel on the Capitol steps got just a handful of folks. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you're seeing that these candidates that are coming out of the woodwork who have been pulled to the MAGA position, once you take the Trump shine away from it, do they, do they look good up against their Democratic opponents? Let, let me jump in on that first. Um, so, and this is from both polling by Celinda and I. Um, right after the 2020 election, if you looked at Republican voters, about 60% of the Republicans believed anything Trump had to say and was willing to follow him anywhere, anytime, anyplace. 30% had taken a safe haven of, well, I like his policies, but I don't like the way he acts. And then there was 10% that just were never Trumpers. Today, there's been a shift 
of about 20% from that believes everything he says to the safe haven of, I like his policies, but I don't like the way he acts. So today, that group is now 50%, and the believes everything he says is only 40%, and then you still have the 10% never-Trumpers. That is what the candidates are trying to work through um, because they can talk about, I like these policies, but they have to not endorse the way he acts and his incivility and his ugliness. We'll be right back. And now back to the show. Celinda, when you look at Youngstown, okay, uh, you know Youngstown, right? I actually won Youngstown when I ran for re-election, but you take a, you take a look at Youngstown or Steubenville or any of these uh, the blue collar areas that are up in the in the uh, northeast part of the state. Why did these people think Republicans were going to fix their problems, and why did they run away from Democrats? I think there are three things that are doing it. I think one thing that's doing it is the Democrats have not had enough, a robust, and it goes back to some of the original questions you were asking. The Democrats haven't had a robust enough economic message. And I've been saying this for 20 years. We, if Democrats are not considered better on the economy than Republicans, there is no reason to elect Democrats if you're a blue collar Democrat. And we have really fallen behind in that. And we have not had a consistent message. And then we've accentuated with our campaigns. Uh, Joe Biden won in part because Joe Biden ran 40% of his advertising on the economy. Hillary Clinton, and I loved Hillary, but she ran only one ad in the whole campaign completely devoted to the economy. That's a formula for disaster. And what does concern me right now, and you both raised it and Jordan raised it too, we're 17 points behind on the economy right now. We've got to get caught up on that. We definitely have to get caught up by 2024. We won 2020 in part because Joe Biden was considered um, tied with Donald Trump on the economy. And people thought Trump was a businessman. They thought they liked some of the Republican economic policies. They think they pay more attention to the economy. And we, we've got to counter that with an aggressive manufacturing uh, profile. And I think Joe Biden's doing some of that, but it's a long hole that we've got to dig out of. The second thing that's happening is people often talk about Democrats being beat because we're considered too liberal, culturally too liberal. I think our bigger problem, honestly, is that Democrats are often considered too weak. These Midwestern blue collar, particularly male voters, really like the toughness and the strength. And yes, they didn't like the style, particularly their wives didn't like the style. Uh, but it was a very, very important um, piece for um, competing. And we've got to strengthen our profile. We've got to be tougher. And then I think uh, we do get boxed into awkward positions. Um, and we, you know, uh, we're still struggling with that on the cultural issues. I think Republicans get boxed into awkward positions too. And I think you um, always had a reasonableness that really um, uh, mounted that. And I think governors in general don't get boxed in as much on either side as the senators and Congress people do. But, you know, we sound like we're, def de you know, defending abortion on demand in the day before the delivery. Well, as it turns out, abortions later in pregnancy are one to two percent of, of abortions. Right. They only happen when something has gone terribly wrong. And um, 
you know, uh, Democrats at least believe this should be left up to the doctor, the woman. You know, no politician can make this decision for someone. But it's one to two percent of abortions. People think it's like half of abortions. Um, Similarly, I think uh, Republicans um, and I don't know what people's positions are, but I think what happened in terms of Martha's Vineyard is indefensible. You just don't deceive people like that. You don't treat them like that. You don't take children up like that. Nobody believes in that. And actually, one of the things I admire most about Ed, he is, in my opinion, being the most courageous, firm Democrat or Republican on the immigration issue. We have to have a different system. And playing theatrics with real people's lives, it's just not. It was a disgrace. It was a disgrace what they did. Disgrace. And it really underestimated because, of course, real people, including people from churches and people from Black Lives Matter, people from every, brought food, brought transportation, took people into their homes, found students who could speak Spanish. I mean, this is just not America. We're not going to do it this way. Um, So I think both sides get pushed into extremes and um, it does not work. And we've got to get and I think that we often get misrepresented. And I think that the Republicans have been smarter about using that against us. Um, So I think we got to have an economic plan. We got to show strength and we've got to um, make sure that we really talk to people about where we're coming from. But going going back to Youngstown and and what we saw in Youngstown, we also saw in rural America across the country. And this is what came with Trump, is that that part of the country was tired of political correctness. They were tired of being told, you have to say things this way, you have to act that way. And along comes a candidate who didn't act that way, and whether it was because he didn't have any shame, but he didn't act that way. He got in people's face. He was politically incorrect. And that's what the tie was to rural America in places like Youngstown. Um, and it doesn't mean he was right, but it did mean he touched them in a way that no one quite understood in the beginning. I think the difference today is, is that people are tired of that. People are the tired of the, I'm doing this because they're doing that. And they want to get back to people that are doing the right thing for the right reasons, because that's who they are. I'm curious what you think of this. I, I hear all this. And, and sometimes when I look at these numbers, they make a lot of sense to me. But I think the reflective of an America that we want to see that is engaged, informed on these issues and these topics, and they're talking about the political system and what they need to do to enact people who can govern. And they're talking a lot about governing. But when I go out there, I feel like what I'm talking to people about are just the tribal politics. And we're talking about we're talking about immigration. We're talking about all these things. But we're not really talking about those being the things that move the needle. What we're really talking about is I want my side to win. And I think the great magic trick that happened in the MAGAverse is that for some reason that became a movement of identity. And now it's more about win-loss than it is about can I elect somebody who's going to affect my way of life with government. I think there's a lot of general cynicism in a lot of America about governance doing anything for the common good. Therefore, the, the bare minimum they can get out of it is a, a, a victory in and of itself. And so I wonder if you see that reflected in any of the numbers that you're seeing. Am I being conspiratorial? But more often than not, it is this feeling that the discussion about politics and the ways in which these issues affect people 
are theoretical and not based on the way in which people actually vote, which I think is much more guttural and tribal. But that goes back to my original point that in the primaries, we are electing tribal mm-hmm. leaders. Yeah. And so even if more people are voting in the general election, that that's already been baked into who's going to be the leaders on both sides. That that somehow we have to get to where we are electing more people that are not from the far left and the far right and truly are centrist and truly represent what most people want, which is government that does something. And what you said about cynicism is is very true about this country. Opinions of all institutions in this country, government, education, religion is down everywhere. And that causes cynicism. And the cynicism has been driven because they're not giving solutions to people's problems. They don't understand the basic cycle of politics, of of solutions, which is you talk about the problem, you talk about solutions, you implement solutions, and that can create a new set of problems. And we've gone through that cycle so many times that all the voters see is you're not fixing our problems and you're you're creating bigger problems than the solution that I want fixed. So Linda, you, uh, we talk about polarization and I know you've got this, this new book out and let me just promote it. A question of respect, bringing us together in a deeply divided nation. It's, it's available for pre-order and you're really thinking about this, but when we talk about polarization and we can see the extremes, okay, I know they exist out there on both sides, but let's talk about the fact that people who are kind of normal and not in the extreme, they're not, they don't want to talk to each other. They don't want to talk about it either. It's sort of like, you know, it's it's like a football. It's like Michigan and Ohio State. I've, I'm, you know, it, nobody wants to concede. Well, you know, Michigan may be better than we think, or Ohio State's really good. Nobody wants to concede it because we have our red and blue jerseys on. I understand it when it is out here on the extremes but it is harder to solve when it's held sort of in the middle. I don't know if you agree with that, but if you do or don't, I mean, if you do agree with it, what do we do about it? How do we solve that problem? Well, I think that we have to see what is structurally, what are the structures in our system that are creating and accentuating polarization? We talked some about that. We, And it's interesting, like Ed and I have different solutions in some of the areas, but we agree on the problems. Like, campaign finance reform, we, we prefer different solutions, but there's no question. Uh, the way we vote and the participation rates, ranked choice voting is something that leads to less negative campaigning. Yeah, we need to all look at that, yes. And I think Ed's firm's doing something on it. I'm very interested in it. But yeah. what about things like social media? Is that driving so, people? Yeah. And I'm talking yeah. about normal folks. I'm not talking about, again, I'm not out here. I'm, I'm like with like normal people. You know, it's like they don't want to have a discussion about immigration. How do we fix that? You know, well, we have to have border security. Yeah, but we also have to let immigrants in. I mean, there's it's like you can't get beyond the the headline to get them to just kind of calm down about this. And I, I, I don't see it's hap- how it's going to happen. One of the things that I, I like to think we did well in the book is we wrote the first nine chapters, which is talking about the problem talked about the problems in a we voice and solutions in an I voice, so we didn't have to fight over everything. (laughs) But we wrote all nine of those chapters before we wrote the concluding chapter about hope, because we wanted to see how big of a wall we had built 
so that what we suggested as a solution or a key solution didn't come across as Pollyannish. And we kind of knew where we were going, that the answer is the youth of this country. Uh, when we asked, is the youth an answer to bring us to being a more civil country? 58% of the country says yes. It is overwhelming with young voters, overwhelming with older voters. It's just the generation of kind of 34 to 44 that think are upside down negative. But when we got there, we came to understand that they're not going to come there on their own because we're too much in an environment of I'm doing this because they're doing that. And so our final conclusion, which I think is a good conclusion, is we need more leaders like you, John, to stand up and light the way to more civility because the youth isn't going to come to those conclusions on their own. And so what we're lacking today is not a path out. What we're lacking is enough leaders willing to stand above the fray and say, I'm sorry, this doesn't count. Much in the same way, and one of the things we highlight is when John McCain in that one presentation, when someone went after Barack Obama, he stopped it and said, no, he's a real person, he's a real American, he's a good person. That was the type of thing we need to see from more of our leaders today, to stand up and say, this doesn't work anymore. Jordan, here's one of the here's one of the problems, Jordan, is you know, it's like when the immigrants were being being shipped across the country like cattle. I put a tweet out immediately. I didn't really think about it. I didn't call any pollster. I just said, this is just outrageous, okay? The response to it was really interesting. The response to it was significant and strong. I mean, there were a few people that didn't like it, but I think what a, a lot of people do who are in a position to lead, they want to measure everything. Like, mm -hmm. what is this person going to think or what is that person going to think? And being able to to have you know, to, a, to, to, be, to be just free to do what you want to do and say what you want to do, um, it has its rewards. But I got to tell you, it also has its punishments. And I think a lot of people who are around the public square are always trying to figure out, too much of the time, figure out how's, how's it going to play in Peoria. And mm -hmm. I, don't, I think that's what's hurting us. Our leaders are not, I mean, and whoever they are, whether they're behind a microphone, doing a podcast, whether they're on television, whether they're elected, whether they're in business, that's what we don't have enough of calling stuff out. I think. Well, here's here's where I'm curious. Uh, first of all, I'm shocked to hear that John Kasich could be the voice of the youth. That <laughs> blows my mind. I know, I know, he has a musical sensibility like a 14 year old girl, but I had no idea that he was going to be the voice of the youth. So, shocker alert! I'm going to buy the book, pre-ordering as we speak. Uh, secondly, though, I was part of that age group, <laughs> the cynical age group. You're like, yeah, and that 35, 45, those are the cynics. So let me speak to that cynical age group because I hear you with what it feels like our country needs. And you, you mentioned someone like uh, Governor Kasich, uh, the ideals of John McCain. The cynic in me says, I hear you, but that time is gone. It doesn't play anymore. And I, I wish it did. This doesn't come out of something I desire, but it's something we talk a lot more about now is like, I think the discourse we have, I think the issue we have with democracy right now is an issue we have with communication and the ways in which we communicate right now, uh, those mediums in and of themselves, 
they have a totally different value system than the politics of 20 years ago with John McCain. And that value system, which is reinforced through Facebook, reinforced through Twitter, like the ways in which we communicate now, it values very different things and it gets traction in very different ways than those ways of the past. And that a John McCain right now would be would be kicked out. He wouldn't. He wouldn't hold political office. You see what's happening it, right, right now. His seat is being fought over by uh, crazy folks, and so I I yearn for that. But I fear the issue isn't about coming back to those types of characters. I think we're always on the lookout for transformative people who can bring us back together. But I think the issue has more to do with the communication and the ways in which these things get talked about, because that has eroded the conversation and the candidates who carry the issues of the day. Now, the encouraging thing out there is I've been amazed over the last year at the number of universities in this country that are starting civility institutes who are putting civil discourse as a major part of their curriculum. So I think when we talk about leaders, part of it is getting the leaders to go there with the youth and light the way there rather than just in their personal life and the way that they're they're operating out there. And one of the things Linda and I are going to do, quite frankly, is commit the resources from this book to to helping these civility institutes do better and better out there. Well, I think it's also one step at a time and one change at a time is the way I look at things, Celinda. Look, we're going to run out of time, but so we've got to do this. Is, okay, you, ready? you want to write these down? Is Trump going to run? Is Biden going to run? If Trump doesn't run, who are the leading candidates? If Biden doesn't run, who are the Democrats going to go with? And what's going to happen in the Senate and the House this fall? I'm sorry to lay all that on you, but you we pay you well, a lot of money to do these call. things. So. I'll let to go first. <laughs> in, 60, in 60 seconds, so I, I've never been happier for another call. Trump is going to run, <laughs> or at least he thinks he is, so that's what counts. Biden is going to run. And certainly we'll run if Trump runs. Don't you love it? I love also, we just talked about our final chapter is about hope. And the only really way to save it is the youth. Who's running the next election? Oh, it's going to be Biden and Trump. <laughs> <laughs> great. Great. Can't wait. Uh, let You want to hear from the cynics again in the 35 to 45 range? <laughs> well, you got to run for office, Jordan. <laughs> oh, I'm going to run for office when the public is ready for me, when I'm 97 years old. That's exactly what I'm going to run for office. How, uh, how about the how about the Senate and the House, uh, Celinda? I think the Senate, um, you know, the, the senators have the ability to create their own dynamics. Those races are going to go back and forth. I think the odds are that we pick up a couple, a seat or two. Uh, but there are a lot of races that are pretty darn close. I do think in the end, the Republicans... Uh, many Republicans are chagrined at who won some of those primaries, and I think right. that will take a toll. In the House, we've only got six seats. I think it's hard to maintain control, but I think it will be close. And I think that, you know, Biden didn't bring in a bunch of seats. They're not a bunch of seats washing out. But that, I, you know, the place I want to be is I want to be in the mouse, uh, mouse in the corner of the Republican caucus. How is Kevin McCarthy going to rule that caucus? God help him. Um, and I have no idea who the Republicans are going to nominate. And I will say that we're going to have at least 25 candidates run after uh, Joe Biden. Uh, so um, it'll be anybody's game. And OK, I think the House, um, we win. Questions by how much. What's interesting right now is that if you look at the endangered categories, 
there are 12 Democrat open seats and only four Republican open seats. And in an environment that leans towards the Republicans, that means that they probably win at least eight, which gives them control of Congress. I think, I think in the Senate, it's kind of 50-50. I think it was looking very strong in our direction eight weeks ago. It kind of worked against us with the abortion issue. But I think Biden made a huge mistake going after the MAGA Republicans, because while there are a lot of Republicans that aren't in that category, if they have to choose between Republican or Biden, who they all dislike in terms of the job he's doing, I think he's lost on that. So I think I think the Senate's 50-50. Um, I think Trump does not run. It may be wishful thinking on my part, um, uh, but I think he does not run. I think Biden does run. But going back to your point, Jordan, I think um, the numbers I'm looking at, whichever party comes up with first, a young, um, uh, charismatic uh, candidate for president, they're gonna steal a whole generation of voters out there for a good 15, 20 years. So this election is probably not going to be that because we have to sort through the old guys that are still there. But I think whichever party moves young um, and finds the right candidate, um, I think they're gonna become the majority party for a good period of time. All right, I'll run. Fine, you convinced <laughs> me. My country needs me. Governor, you want to come along, be my running mate? You got you got the youth vote. Sure, sure, I'll do it with you. Celinda <laughs> uh, so and Ed's upcoming book, A Question of Respect, bringing us together in a deeply divided nation, is available for pre-order now. Ed, Celinda, so thanks for joining us. Hey, everybody, Jordan here, uh, your favorite host of the Kasich Klepper podcast. Thank you for listening this far. If you like what you hear, Click like or thumbs up or whatever icon signifies a positive reaction. We love your ratings. We love your thoughts. Reach out to us on social media. Let us know what you want us to talk about because I'm tired of answering the governor's questions and I just prefer to answer yours. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Kasich and Klepper is a production of Treefort Media, hosted and executive produced by John Kasich and Jordan Klepper. Treefort Media's executive producers are Kelly Garner, Lisa Ammerman, and Matthew Kugler. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Associate producer, Lee Albanese. Audio direction by Tom Monahan, head of audio for Treefort, with production and editing by Maxwell Carney. Sound editing by Abigail Sullivan. Talent booking by Blythe Asher. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, Lindsay Whistler, Colin Motel, and Anastasia Ibrahim. This podcast is powered by ACAST. <laughs>